Well, the title of this seminar is Lessons from the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and uh, the idea is supposed to be lessons that we can learn from Charles Spurgeon as a churchman. It, it was, I think, in keeping with the theme of this week's conference, the guys who organized asked me to do this breakout session on Spurgeon and his view of the church. And actually, it's a subject I hadn't thought about for a very long time. Let me just give you a little bit of background. In the early 1990s, I edited John MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel, which is an extended critique of pragmatic, seeker-sensitive church growth models. And uh, early in the process, uh, really, it was right after we had begun choosing sermons from the Grace to You catalog to craft into chapters from that book. That's, that's how most of John MacArthur's books are written, by the way. The content comes from sermons he has preached, and uh, then someone like me edits those, reorganizes some text, and, and tries to make it sound more like written prose than a spoken sermon. And so we were beginning just in the planning stages to do that, and someone gave John MacArthur a short excerpt from one of Spurgeon's sermons. It was just a clipping that they'd taken out and handed it to him, and the quotation fit the theme of John's book so well that he passed it on to me and said, you know, work this into the first chapter of the book. This is really good. And uh, the excerpt was, like I said, just a clipping, and it was undocumented, with no no clue anywhere about what it came from, what sermon or article or whatever. So I went on a quest to verify that Spurgeon really said this, first of all, and, and uh, where he said it so that I could document it. And that was in the years, just a few years before I, I even had internet access. There was no Google, of course, and No one had digitized any of Spurgeon's sermons, so it was no easy task for me to find the source, and I ended up reading more Spurgeon than I had ever read before, which is a good thing. I found dozens more places where Spurgeon was saying precisely the kinds of things John MacArthur wanted to say in Ashamed of the Gospel. I remember going back to John and saying, you don't have to write this book, just collect what Spurgeon said about the subject, you know? But I copied all these quotes along with the documentation, and I finally found the source of that original excerpt in a collection of sermons and articles Spurgeon had published during the downgrade controversy. The downgrade controversy, of course, was the final conflict of Spurgeon's life. He was fighting against the very same trends of pragmatism and man-pleasing that John MacArthur was taking on in Ashamed of the Gospel. And so in the end, we, we actually literally ended up weaving the story of Spurgeon and the downgrade into John MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel. And if you haven't read that book, you must. It is still as timely as ever, you, and I think you'll not only be challenged to think differently about the church and her mission today— you will also learn a lot about Spurgeon's ministry philosophy, which was pretty simple, frankly. And by the way, it was that study of Spurgeon that, that and the downgrade in, back in 1991 or 1990 or so that first ignited my passion for Spurgeon. That's what got me reading Spurgeon in the first place. And when I got on the internet in 1995, I, I just wanted to put as much Spurgeon online as possible. I had had no intention of uh, of that, you know, sort of taking over my life, but it was a good hobby, and I'm glad we did it. But like 
John MacArthur, when Spurgeon dealt with the issue of ministry philosophy, exactly like John MacArthur, he always began by pointing out 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Uh, that is really a perfect summary of Spurgeon's ministry philosophy, if you wanted to say it in a single sentence. And uh, I'd say it's a pretty fair summary of the Apostle Paul's ministry philosophy, too. Uh, you know, he was the one who said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, but so that the cross of Christ would be exalted and not emptied of its power. And Paul also said in Colossians 1.25 that the stewardship that he had received from God was simple, namely, to make the word of God fully known. That, that was his aim. That was the sum of his ministry philosophy. And he told the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that, in a nutshell, was also the heart and soul of Spurgeon's ministry philosophy. You can study all of the advice he ever recorded about being a pastor and pursuing a faithful ministry, and you can't help noticing that Spurgeon's ministry philosophy always began and ended with the mandate to preach the Word of God faithfully. I've been reading and cataloging Spurgeon pretty regularly since 1995 or even before that, but I had never really thought about trying to catalog and organize all of Spurgeon's ecclesiological convictions into, you know, a one-hour presentation like this until they suggested this breakout session. My initial thought was that I was going to find an abundance of material to draw from because Spurgeon, after all, he had a college for training pastors, and his lectures in that context were transcribed and collected in an excellent volume called Lectures to My Students. And so I figured he's going to have a lot to say about the church, including his philosophy of ecclesiastical governance and church polity and guidelines for deacons and elders, biblical ecclesiology, church discipline, church membership, church planting, or the church's role in missions, you know, Mark Dever-type subjects. But Spurgeon's lectures from the pastor's college are actually dominated by advice about preaching and private devotions and the pastor's ordinary conversation or the call to pastoral ministry, the preacher's choice of handling texts for sermons. And those are all great and helpful topics, and they are all tied in one way or another to the preaching ministry. But there's, there's very little insight into Spurgeon's convictions about church polity, or the role of deacons and elders, or the practice of church discipline, or ministry philosophy at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, or other ecclesiological matters like you might have expected when you came here. In, in Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students, that volume that you would expect he would cover all those things, he really doesn't. He focuses on the preaching ministry. Now, it's true Someone might point out, you can, you can glean Spurgeon's ideas on all of those other topics from various things he says in his sermons, but the places where he discusses what the church should be and how it should function are not always obvious, and, and they're not, not issues that he dwells on very much. If you want a document that explains 
what church polity was like at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Spurgeon's time. Spurgeon's brother James actually wrote the definitive article. It's an article titled Discipline of the Church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It appeared in the February 1869 issue of The Sword and the Trowel, Spurgeon's magazine. And it's all about the practice of church discipline, church membership, all kinds of matters like that. And, and uh, so that you have access to it, I put a complete uh, copy of that article online in a PDF that is formatted to fit on your iPad. And uh, I will tweet the URL later today. And so if you follow my Twitter feed, you can find it. Or, okay, if you get bored here and you want to read it on your iPad while I'm speaking... Here's the shortened URL. I'll say it twice if you want to get it. Uh, I shortened it with Google's shortener. It's goo.gl slash capital W, lowercase d, capital N, capital N, the numeral 7, lowercase p. I'll say it one more time. goo.gl slash capital W, lowercase d, capital N, capital N, numeral 7P. That's as short as I could get the URL. Anyway, it's an interesting article, a fascinating article. You'll also find a modern blog post that was published, I think, within the past month, analyzing James Spurgeon's article, the one I just gave you the link to. You'll find it at spurgeon.org, which has been taken over. I I actually donated the website to... uh, the uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, and they're doing a much better job than I was of maintaining and adding to it. And they added an article, uh, just Google this title, Meaningful Membership at Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Meaningful Membership at Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Jeff Chang is the author of this article. That's G-E-O-F-F and Chang, C-H-A-N-G. But... I think it's fair to say that Charles Spurgeon's strongest views on the church and ministry philosophy and all related issues uh, typically centered on the pastor and his duties and his character and his public testimony and, above all, his preaching. And I think you're going to see that. Spurgeon never referred to the Metropolitan Tabernacle as my church. He had a very keen sense that the church belongs to Christ. And as a shepherd, he was merely a caretaker of something that did not belong to him. In a conference for ministers, he said this, quote, It is a very delightful thing to feel that all the work we are doing is Jesus Christ's work. All the sheep we have to shepherd are his sheep. The souls we have to bring to him were bought with his blood. The spiritual house that is to be built is for his habitation. It's all his. I delight in working for my Lord and Master because I feel a blessed community of interest with Him. That is not my Sunday school, it's the Lord's. And He says, feed my lambs. It's not my church, but His. And He cries, feed my sheep. And uh, in a different context, in a sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, He said this, quote, A true church is a very precious thing. It is not a mere human society banded together for certain objects, but it's a community which God himself hath formed and over which he doth watch with an unsleeping eye. It's a flock which he cares for so that heaven and earth shall be ransacked, but what he will have provender for them. This flock is so well preserved that at the last the great shepherd will say, Of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. 
preached a sermon titled, What the Church Should Be. That was in 1878. That's 24 years after he came to London, so well into his ministry. It's sermon number 1427, if you want to look it up. It was a sermon on 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul tells Timothy, These things I write unto thee, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And Spurgeon began by stressing again that the church is the house of God. It doesn't belong to us. He says this, quote, The church is the house of God, and in God's own house, a man ought to be on his best behavior. For it is no light thing to draw near to the Lord. A poor man who is called to visit a prince or a king will anxiously inquire how he ought to act. We, poor creatures that we are, when we are admitted into the church, which is the house of God, should inquire what conduct will be decorous and desirable in those who are admitted to the presence of the great king. So just think through what he's saying there. It's pretty clear that, and from other things Spurgeon said really throughout his ministry, that he would not appreciate the relaxed, informal atmosphere of most churches today. He opposed anything that smacked of entertainment in the gathered meetings of the church. He despised the notion that preachers needed to get their sermon topics from the headlines. He had nothing but scorn for pastors who thought they needed to study what's timely and popular and preach on that. You'll see that really clearly if you read Ashamed of the Gospel, John MacArthur's book, or just sample what Spurgeon himself wrote during the downgrade controversy. He had some fairly public and famous conflicts with pastors who had different ministry philosophies, who believed they needed to follow current fashions in order to stay relevant. And the best known of those was a pastor named Joseph Parker, who uh, was the pastor of London's famous city temple. And what I want to do for most of this hour is tell you the story of the conflict between Spurgeon and Parker as a way of contrasting two totally different ministry philosophies between these two men. There were many remarkable similarities between Spurgeon and Parker, but the differences, the things that set them ultimately against one another, were some of the most important features of Spurgeon's philosophy of ministry. And because Spurgeon himself was so focused on the preaching ministry, that's where a lot of my comparison here is going to focus. Joseph Parker was the second most famous preacher in London during the final three decades of Spurgeon's life. I'd be surprised if most of you haven't heard his name. There was a notion in those days that, uh, especially among tourists from the outlying provinces of the UK and visitors from America as well, the, the normal lore was, you know, if you go to London and you're there for two Sundays, you need to go to the Met Tab and hear Spurgeon first and then visit City Temple and listen to Joseph Parker the next week. In fact, my pastor before I came to Grace Church was Warren Wearsby, and he said this, I'm quoting him, quote, if I were in London on the Lord's Day and had already heard Spurgeon preach, I would hasten to the city temple and there sit at the feet of Joseph Parker, whose congregations were second in size only to those of Spurgeon. And in fact, lots of tourists did do that. I googled this actually, and there are on, online are some diaries of famous people 
who visited London and talked about listening to Spurgeon and listening to Joseph Parker. So it was a big thing in those days. And I, I want to admit, I don't have a very high opinion of Joseph Parker, and I'm going to explain why. But he did occasionally dispense nuggets of biblical insight and wisdom. And also, if you want some pointers for your style of delivery in the craft of public speaking, Parker can very likely teach you some things. Like Spurgeon, Joseph Parker had an uncanny gift for communication, and by all reports, he was a captivating speaker. Once a very frustrated young man, wannabe pastor, who who came to Parker complaining because this young man said he had tried everything, but he couldn't get a church to hire him as their pastor. And as Parker's assistant tells the story in his biography, this young man was, quote, scholarly, studious, well-informed, willing to work, but no church would invite him. Still quoting from the biography. So Dr. Parker told him to stand up in the corner of his study and preach his best sermon, promising at the end to give him as fair a verdict as he could. So the guy preached his best sermon. At the end of the performance, Dr. Parker said, here's why you can't get a church. For the past half hour, you've not been trying to get something into my mind. You've been trying to get something off of yours. He says, you're like a man anxious to get rid of a sack of coals. <laughs> That's not bad advice either. I've heard a lot of preachers who I think, he's not trying to get something into my head. He's trying to get something off his own mind. Parker was ingenious in devising sort of practical solutions to common but annoying pastoral problems. You might learn some things practical from him as a pastor. For example, he had an electronic switch under his desk that rang a bell in his secretary's office, and he used it to signal the secretary when Parker wanted to cut a meeting short. I I need to do this, by the way. (laughs) Here's a story from his biography, quote, on one occasion, a very pale-faced young man went into the vestry and after a moment's hesitation said, I am studying to be a poet. No sooner did I hear those ominous words, said Dr. Parker, than I touched my electric bell with my left foot, in response to which an assistant appeared and we gracefully got the young budding poet out into the open air with the least possible delay. I mean, you got to kind of like the guy, right? One, one more story about Parker. When he came to London, he was besieged with invitations to speak at this or that event, and people always wanted to know, what do you charge to speak at events? And so he published this notice in his church's weekly newsletter, quote, as an arrangement for self-protection, I am driven to announce the following as my charges for general public service. Preaching on behalf of the salaries of poor ministers, the charge is nothing. Preaching for ministers whose salaries are less than 100 pounds a year, the charge is nothing. Preaching at the opening of chapels, the charge is six volumes of standard literature. Attending tea meetings, the charge is 50 pounds. That, by the way, is the 1860 equivalent of about $7,700. I looked it up. (laughs) Going to bazaars, 1,000 guineas. Today's equivalent would be more than a half million dollars. Serving on committees, 2,000 pounds. That's well over a million in today's money. Anyway, the church where Parker preached, City Temple, 
was a large nonconformist congregation whose history actually dates back to the time of the earliest Puritans. No one knows precisely when this congregation was founded, but it was sometime in the 1500s, which would make this perhaps the oldest still functioning, and it is still functioning today, Protestant nonconformist congregation in all of England. It's a congregational church, not a Baptist church like Spurgeon's. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, a famous Puritan author and preacher whose name you might know, pastored that congregation in the 1600s. And when Joseph Parker came there, it was 1869, they were still meeting in a 200-year-old building located in a street called Poultry Street uh, in in London's Cheapside District. And so the church was known as the Poultry Church. I love that. The Poultry, where do you pastor? I'm the pastor of the Poultry Church. Sounds like he's preaching to chickens. But he led this congregation very soon after he came there to build City Temple, this very large and ornate church building nearby, and they moved there. And ever since then, it has been known as the City Temple Church. City Temple is still in that same location today. It's right in the heart of central London. City Temple's interior was destroyed during the German Blitz. It was hit with a German incendiary bombs, the bomb. The, the Germans would drop these little bombs, you know, you could hold them in one hand all over London. And when they landed, they would ignite a fire which would burn through the roof and just gut a building. That happened to the Metropolitan Tabernacle as well. The exact same thing. In fact, both of those buildings, the facade survived, but the interior was, was gutted. And so, uh, they were rebuilt with the original facades. So you can visit City Temple today in Holborn Street, London, and from the outside, at least, the building looks exactly the same as it did in Joseph Parker's time, very similar with the Metropolitan Tabernacle. You go there and you see the original facade. What you might not know about the Metropolitan Tabernacle is that it's been burned down twice and rebuilt using that same facade. Joseph Parker had received an honorary doctorate from a doctor of divinity degree from, of all places, the University of Chicago. I think they gave him the degree based on one of his books. He never traveled to America, much less Chicago, but he had this honorary doctor of divinity degree. He was eloquent. He was a gifted writer. He was quite comfortable among England's upper class, In short, he was a man of refinement who was held in esteem by London's high society. Joseph Parker is best remembered today as the author of the People's Bible. It's a set of 27 devotional commentaries that cover the entire Bible. The content was drawn from more than 1,000 sermons that Parker preached. So he was, in a sense, a a faithful preacher of the Word. He stayed in the Word, and the, the People's Bible has some helpful insights and some useful sermonic material, but you'll find if you read it that its style is wordy and the prose is dated. It doesn't read as well as Spurgeon does today. Parker had a reputation for being stylish and sophisticated, and you know that by, if you know anything about Spurgeon, you know by contrast, uh, people often commented on how Spurgeon would speak the language of every man. And in fact, an 1870 article in Vanity Fair magazine did a profile, short profile on Spurgeon, and it referred to his use of the vernacular as slang, which was a 
total mischaracterization. He didn't use slang, but he did speak so that anybody, even a street sweeper, could understand what he was saying. He was unpretentious and rustic and easy to follow. Parker, by contrast, was eloquent and urbane, and as a result, today, Parker's prose sounds flowery to our ears. He doesn't communicate as well as Spurgeon to people in our generation. Spurgeon's sermons, you can read them, and, and you know, there are these and thous and things that do make them sound a little dated, but for the most part, Spurgeon's sermons, the content and the ease of reading, seem almost as timeless as they were the day they were delivered. You just wouldn't say that about Parker. In fact, let me give you an example. Here's a sample of what I mean about Parker's flowery language. I I literally picked this paragraph at random from Parker's People's Bible. I just flopped it open, and here's what popped up. This is from the opening prayer of Joseph Parker's sermon on Acts 20. This is a message on Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. He prays like this, quote, We will make our hearts familiar with thy love before speaking of our sin, for then our hearts will utter themselves in hope, and our spirits shall be saved from the darkness of despair. We will think of the mountain clothed with light, of the throne of the heavenly grace, radiant with welcomes to sinful penitence. We will think of the cross, the light, the blood, the triumph. We will remember that there is a fountain opened in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. And then when we come to tell thee of our guilt, we shall feel inspired and quieted by all the reality of thy grace. Now, there's nothing heretical there, but you can't imagine Spurgeon laboring so hard to sound elaborate. It just comes across to me as bombastic, and I think it actually softens the truth that he's aiming to communicate. And I I frankly suspect that that was perhaps part of Parker's intent to dampen the hard truths a little bit. And in fact, that is one of the major differences between these two men and their preaching style. Spurgeon's sermons have the kind of gravitas that is simply lacking in Parker. Parker once said that the highest of compliments he ever received was from an omnibus driver. Uh, Omnibus was the horse-drawn equivalent of London's city buses. And as this guy pulled up to the stop adjacent to the city temple, he told a disembarking uh, passenger that he liked Parker. He said this, quote, I went there once and I enjoyed myself so much that I'm going again the first night off I have. We laughed and we cried and we had a rare time. You see, he doesn't make religion so serious. That was Parker's favorite compliment. Spurgeon would have been embarrassed to have a comment like that made about him, but Parker took it as a high compliment. They were similar in ages. Joseph Parker was just two years older than Spurgeon. You probably know that Spurgeon was called to pastor at the New Park Street Church in London before he even turned 20 years old. He was still a teenager. He was an amazing prodigy. So although he was two years younger than Joseph Parker, Spurgeon was by far more seasoned and more experienced in pastoral work. When Joseph Parker started his ministry in London in 1869, Spurgeon had already been in London for some 15 years, pastoring the largest congregation in the city. His congregation had settled, resettled from the New Park Street place to the Metropolitan Tabernacle more than eight years before Joseph Parker built 
city temple. Spurgeon and Parker actually started out as friends, probably not close friends, but they exchanged pulpits on occasion. They were an unlikely pair. Parker was a suave-looking, swank-sounding lover of elegance and class. Spurgeon was the son and the grandson of simple country parsons who had no desire to seem more elegant or more intellectual or more fashionable than they really were. Spurgeon himself had very little respect for people who thought it was important to try to impress the world with how cerebral or, or how, how elegant they were. Parker liked to go to the theater and hang out with the top hats in central London. And that was a matter of concern to Spurgeon. He, he openly criticized Parker for his hanging out with the theater crowd. And finally, in 1887, after they had known each other for at least 18 years, Spurgeon and Parker had a major conflict that ultimately left Parker so angry with Spurgeon that he never really got over it. Parker was planning to have a major conference, and he invited Spurgeon to participate and to preach the opening sermons. Spurgeon was, after all, the the best-known, most beloved, most famous pastor in London, so he would have been a big draw for the conference. Parker told him this was to be, quote, a public conference between ministers of all denominations gathered from all parts of the country. And from the tone of the invitation he sent, it's clear that Parker thought he was being magnanimous and offering Spurgeon an opportunity of honor that he couldn't possibly refuse. But Spurgeon knew, even though Parker did not mention it in the invitation, that Parker had invited also Henry Ward Beecher to come from America and be one of the speakers at the conference. Now, if you know anything at all about Henry Ward Beecher, you understand how odious this must have been to Spurgeon. Beecher was America's most famous preacher. He was also America's most notorious adulterer. He had committed adultery with the wife of one of his assistants, and in those days, adultery was illegal as sodomy. And Beecher was put on trial in a court case that became literally the 19th century equivalent of the trial of O.J. Simpson. People worldwide followed the details of that trial daily in their newspaper, and the trial dragged on. It began in January of 1875 and lasted more than six months until June, and when it ended with a hung jury, and every day headlines about the seedy, seamy uh, revelations that were made about, about Beecher's private misbehavior, but it ended with a hung jury, so he got off, and after the trial, Beecher simply returned to preaching as if nothing had happened. But it was just like the Simpson trial in that the whole world knew Beecher was guilty. There's a great biography of Beecher that chronicles, uh, part of it chronicles this case in detail. The title of the biography is The Most Famous Man in America. It was written by Debbie Applegate. I think it won a Pulitzer Prize sometime within the past decade. It's a great book. The Most Famous Man in America. It's about Henry Ward Beecher. Just... Twelve years later, after Beecher's sex scandal had produced six months' worth of sleazy international headlines, Joseph Parker wanted to bring Beecher to London to share a platform with Spurgeon. And Spurgeon, I think delicately but somewhat tersely, said, no thanks. In fact, let me read you the pertinent part of Spurgeon's reply. He wrote, quote, 
I feel I have no right whatever to question you about your course of procedure. You are a distinguished man with a line of your own, but your conduct puzzles me. I can only understand a consistent course of action, either for the faith or against it, and yours does not seem to exhibit that quality. (laughs) He says, I'm sorry that frankness requires me to say this, and having said it, I desire to say no more. I think that we had better each go his own way in brotherly friendliness, each hopeful of the other. To discuss your procedure would not be wise. In your letter just received, I greatly rejoice, and if this line of things is to be followed up, you will find me the heartiest of friends. But at this present, I'd better say no more. Yours with the kindest wishes and great admiration of your genius, C.H. Spurgeon. Yeah, see, if I wrote that, it would sound sarcastic. But uh, I think Spurgeon was speaking from his heart. Parker, he really just wanted to tell him no in the frankest possible way and leave the whole thing behind. But Parker replied with a statement that borrowed language from Matthew 5.23 and, and Matthew 18.15 and sort of mingled those two verses in his own. He said this, quote, If thou hast aught against thy brother, go and tell him his fault between thee and thy brother. And he offered to come and meet Spurgeon at his house. Spurgeon replied with a longer letter, quote, Dear Dr. Parker, if I had aught against you, I would see you gladly, but I have no personal offense nor shadow of it. Your course to me has been one of uniform kindness for which I am most grateful. The question is very different. You ask me to cooperate with you in a conference for the vindication of the old evangelical faith. I do not see my way to do this. First, I do not believe in the conference. And second, I don't see how I could act with you in it because I do not think your past course of action entitles you to be considered a champion of the faith. How would you like to get that from Spurgeon? (laughs) And then he says... There's nothing in this which amounts to having aught against you. You have, no doubt, weighed your actions, and you are of age. These are not private but public matters, and I do not intend to go into them either in my house or yours. (laughs) The evangelical faith in which you and Mr. Beecher agree is not the faith I hold. Add the view of religion which takes you to the theater is so far off from mine that I cannot commune with you therein. The theater was a big hang-up with Spurgeon. He says, I do not feel that these are matters in which I have the slightest right to call you into account. You wrote to me, and I tried to let the matter go by. You write to me again and compel me to be more explicit, altogether against my will. I do not now write for any eye but your own, and I most of all desire that you will now let the matter drop. To go further will only make you angry, and it will not alter me. I do not think the cooperation sought would be a wise one, and I'd rather decline it without further questioning. To make this public would serve no useful end. I have told you of the matter alone, and now I must decline any further correspondence. Yours with every good wish, C.H. Spurgeon. Parker sent, in reply to that, a postcard with five words, best thanks and best regards. But he didn't permanently drop the matter, nor did he respect Spurgeon's desire to keep it private. Two years later, on April 24, 1890, just as Spurgeon's minister's conference was about to begin, Parker published an open letter in the British Weekly, a newspaper. I, I 
can't read the whole thing because it's, it's very long. But here's enough to give you the flavor. Parker writes, When people ask me what I think of Spurgeon, I always ask, which Spurgeon? The head or the heart? The Spurgeon of the tabernacle or the Spurgeon of the orphanage? The kind of Calvinism which the one occasionally represents, I simply hate, as I hate selfishness and blasphemy. It's that leering, slavering, sly-winking Calvinism that says, Bless the Lord, we are all right, booked straight through to heaven first class and insured with, uh, insured against both collision and explosion. But as for those who have missed the train or been crushed to death, it is not for me to find fault with the discriminating grace or arrest the action of divine decrees. Brother, pass the salt and shout hallelujah to you are black in the face. That kind of Calvinism I will not condescend to hate. It is too far down in its native perdition to allow of a boot to kick it and yet retain a boot's respectability. You think we're mean on Twitter these days, right? (laughs) And then he says, I will speak frankly as to a brother beloved. Let me advise you to widen the circle of which you are the center. You are surrounded by offerers of incense. They flatter your weaknesses. They laugh at your jokes. They feed you with compliments. My dear Mr. Spurgeon, you are too big a man for this. Take in more fresh air. Open your windows. Even the wind, even when the wind is in the east, scatter your ecclesiastical harem. And then he says this. I'll just read one more sentence. You are really not infallible, he said, occupying a sovereign place only in a pantheon of your own invention. And then he ended the, ends the letter with a smarmy farewell and says, Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? In your inmost soul, you know I am not your enemy but your friend. That letter was stunningly mean-spirited and purposely timed to create a frenzy of controversy. Remember, that's not a private letter. He published that in the newspaper on the opening day of Spurgeon's Minister's Conference. Spurgeon privately told the speakers he had invited to his conference not to say anything about it, just ignore it. And Spurgeon himself ignored it, and that might have been the end of the matter. But even when Spurgeon died a few years later, Parker could not restrain the insults. He wrote a piece commemorating Spurgeon, which he did have some nice things to say, Spurgeon's friend and biographer, W.Y. Fullerton, says, After Mr. Spurgeon's death, Dr. Parker paid a generous tribute to him in The Times, in which occur the following sentences. And then he quotes some of the nice things that Parker had to say. But Fullerton is, even though he's a friend of Spurgeon's, he's being far too gracious with Joseph Parker. Even in his eulogy for Spurgeon, he could not resist pouring toxic sludge on Spurgeon's gravesite. Here's part of the eulogy Fullerton didn't quote. Again, this is published in the newspaper. Parker wrote, quote, Mr. Spurgeon was absolutely destitute of intellectual benevolence. If men saw as he did, they were orthodox. If they saw things in some other way, they were heterodox, pestilent, and unfit to lead the minds of students or inquirers. Mr. Spurgeon's was a superlative egotism. Not the shilly-shallying, timid, half-disguised egotism that cuts off its own head, but the full-grown, overpowering, sublime egotism that takes the chief seat as if by right. The only colors which Mr. Spurgeon recognized were black and white. In all things, he was definite. 
With Mr. Spurgeon, you were either up or down, in or out, alive or dead. As for middle zones, graded lines, light compounding with shadow and a graceful exercise of give and take, he simply looked on them as heterodox and as implacable enemies of the metropolitan tabernacle. Now that, of course, is a bad caricature of how narrow Spurgeon was. It's exaggerated to the point of bearing false witness in what's supposed to be a eulogy honoring the man. Spurgeon was certainly a man of constancy and simplicity. He was steadfast and immovable in the sense Scripture compels us to be. He wasn't interested in theological novelties or massive paradigm shifts, especially when it came to matters of doctrine or worship or church polity or the structure and content of a church service. And and just that much steadfast immovability is all it takes to drive a man like Joseph Parker crazy. I think in his heart, Parker knew that Spurgeon's refusal to be blown about by every wind of doctrine really was a virtue. Because at the start of his article, he spoke of Spurgeon's simplicity, his constancy, his standstillness. Those were his exact words. And in that context, uh, he, he doesn't really say anything good or bad about it. He just says that's how Spurgeon was. But I, I think the average reader is going to see those as positives. Parker couldn't resist turning it into a backhanded criticism by portraying qualities like that as raw egotism. Spurgeon was not an egotist in any sense, nor was he an arrogant or overconfident man. He never claimed that all truth was obvious to him in stark black and white clarity. He had a large heart. In fact, his heart was much larger than Parker's from the tone of those comments. But the point I want to make is that the linchpin of Spurgeon's entire philosophy of ministry was his conviction that no matter how much the culture around us changes, no matter how dramatically public opinion might shift, the church herself is not entitled to follow the world. The ministers of the church must not think that following the world's fashions is a good strategy for reaching the lost. And we dare not share the world's values or obsessions. He hated pragmatism, Spurgeon did, as an evangelistic strategy or as a philosophy of ministry. He despised doctrinal compromise, no matter what reasons were given to try to excuse it. And when practically everyone else thought modernism sounded like a, a step forward, a progressive, positive thing full of potential and promise, modernism, that sounds so sweet. Spurgeon resisted it. And he continued to oppose the modernist drift until the day he died, even though it cost him his reputation, his friends, whatever influence he had, and whatever prestige he had earned by all those years of faithful preaching. By the time he died, his respect had had definitely waned in the popular consciousness of evangelical England. In short, Truth mattered to Charles Spurgeon more than numbers or popularity or uh, renown or academic respectability or any of the things that so many of today's evangelicals seem to think are the most important building blocks of ministry philosophy. He rejected them all. And at the end of Spurgeon's life, the general consensus in the Baptist Union was that while he had once been a great pastor He was now merely a has-been. The ironic thing is that the vote in the Baptist Union that 
ultimately forced Spurgeon to leave that group, the, the convention and the vote were taken in Joseph Parker's city temple. That's where those men met that day. Younger men insisted that Spurgeon's views on ministry had become irrelevant because of his refusal to shift with the times. If you took a poll among young Baptist pastors in England in 1991, I am convinced that the vast majority would have said that Spurgeon was a doddering, diehard dinosaur, and Joseph Parker's ministry was the one you should imitate. Parker was pliable. He was open to progress. He was broad-minded enough to embrace Henry Ward Beecher, and he was just plain cool compared to stodgy old Spurgeon. And in fact, people did say those things about Spurgeon. And the Baptist Union basically had this referendum, and they collectively decided that Spurgeon was irrelevant, and they voted to, they voted to reject the shrill warnings that he had given them Warnings that turned out to be absolutely accurate about the downgrade, the doctrinal decline that was creeping into the Baptist Union. History has abundantly vindicated Spurgeon. There's a reason we still read and quote Spurgeon. Every Baptist worth his salt today knows who Spurgeon was. But you have to explain to the average pastor today who Joseph Parker was. There's a reason Parker's church, the city temple, is struggling and doctrinally adrift today. But meanwhile, the Metropolitan Tabernacle right now is full every Sunday. People at the Met Tab hear today the same doctrines that were preached when Spurgeon was preaching to his generation. It's the same message John Gill was preaching to that same congregation or their ancestors a century prior to Spurgeon. And it is the same message that first brought Benjamin Keach and the founding members of that congregation together back in the 1600s. That is a church that has never been turned over to men who think the way ahead requires a complete overhaul of ministry philosophy or the message. Some of Spurgeon's own students, men who, young men who owed their training to Spurgeon, we're telling people he's too old and, and too sick, and he's outlived his usefulness, they said. But it is a stubborn fact that Spurgeon's sermons are being read and distributed and benefited from by even more people today than they were when he was alive. And those sermons were printed in, in the millions during his lifetime. But they have an even greater outreach today. Contrast that with Parker's People's Bible. Almost no one nowadays considers that an indispensable tool. It's useful at times, maybe, but you aren't likely to find it on anyone's list of desert island books. More to the point, Parker's ministry philosophy was doomed to failure from the start. In a work titled The Company of the Preachers, David Larson says this about Joseph Parker, quote, he had a somewhat dismissive attitude towards theology and its importance. And he sometimes sounded mincing and mediating. In other words, he, he liked to soften and compromise the truth. His successor, R.J. Campbell, espoused the new theology and denatured the atonement entirely. Campbell was finally forced out in 1915 because of his socialistic views. And Campbell was subsequently replaced, by the way, with a rank liberal. Does this sound like the trajectory of any churches today? 
Spurgeon was right to be concerned about the drift of Dr. Parker's lax attitude towards doctrine and his pragmatic approach to church ministry. Back to a sermon I referred to earlier, sermon number 1427, what the church should be. Remember I said Spurgeon began that message by pointing out that the church is the house of God. It doesn't belong to us. We don't get to invent our own definitions of what the church is or what it should be. These vision-casting pastors who claim that their individual strategies were given to them in a dream or a vision and must be followed by the rest of the church, they're going against Scripture. Christ is the one who builds the church, and her task while here on earth is to be a beacon of light that leads people to the truth. In that sermon, Spurgeon defines the church this way, a true church, I'm quoting him, quote, a true church is appointed of God for the, converse, uh, for the uh, conservation of the truth, and before the Lord at the foot of the cross, in the power of the eternal spirit, we would pray that even unto death we may be faithful to our charge. Spurgeon was faithful unto death. His sense of that duty was evident in everything he ever did, everything he ever wrote, everything he ever preached. As I said at the beginning, that sermon, What the Church Should Be, is based on 1 Timothy 3.15, where the church is called the house of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and ground of the truth. And although Spurgeon's comments about the true the church so often focused on the pastor and his character and his duty as a preacher, his accountability to Christ, Spurgeon was careful to say that the clergy are not the church. The church consists of people who make up the flock. And in that same sermon, he said, quote, the text speaks of the church of God, the church of God, meaning all the people of God, not the clergy alone. The clergy are not the church. It would be a great pity if they were. In all churches, it is a great fault if the whole of the people are not involved in the work of the Lord, in the affairs of his house, and especially in the maintenance of the truth. The entire message, like the text he's preaching from, 1 Timothy 3.15, points to the importance of maintaining the truth. That was Spurgeon's passion. That was always at the heart of his concern. When he spoke of the church and what she should be doing, it was always about the, the maintenance and the proclamation of the truth of God's word. I'll close with one final quote from that same sermon. Spurgeon says, quote, Our Lord never taught us to hide the gospel in little rooms down back alleys. He would have us come to the front as much as we can. A church is not a cellar to conceal the truth, but a pillar to display it. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. What is there to be ashamed of? We may ourselves remain unknown, but we must make the truth known at all costs. The church should be like a lighthouse, which is often built as a tall pillar to bear the light at its summit, and like a memorial column which bears a statue upon the top of it, she should lift up the truth of God before the gaze of all men. That's our task. That was Spurgeon's ministry philosophy.